Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Jamie Kreiner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia, to talk about her new book, Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West, out in 2020 with the Yale University Press. Hi, Jamie. Hey, how's it going? It's uh, pretty great, actually. It's a lovely day. I just read this really cool book uh, about pigs, and it was so I'm in a pretty good mood. How about you? How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> Excellent. Students are gone, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, summer on campus. It's so nice, isn't it? Like, obviously, it's great. It's great when they come back to and everything comes back to life, but it's really nice when they go away, too. Yeah, town gets so quiet. And so there's zero traffic. And then when school starts up again in August, there's like a tiny bit of traffic and we all lose it. <laughs> Sure, I remember this as well, like complaining about parking, uh, which is funny. Um, okay, so uh, a legion of pigs in the early medieval West. How did you, I've, I mean, I looked at your CV and you are a medievalist medievalist, but this seems like a bit of uh, a change from your earlier work. How did you come to write about pigs? Um, it's sort of a combination of things. Um, partly... As one does in grad school, you take classes on a bunch of things that don't end up necessarily making it into your dissertation. And um, th- that class for me, um, my favorite class in grad school was um, rural history in the high Middle Ages in Europe with uh, Bill Jordan. And it was an incredible class. I thought, I definitely want to do something with agrarian history eventually. Um, and so, yeah, in, in some way, book two was was going to be about something like that. Um, But it also came about because when I was working on my first book, which was on um, political culture in the kingdom of Gaul, so what's basically now France in the early Middle Ages, um, the documents I was going through for that, um, pigs kept popping up. It was pretty weird. And um, having taken that class with Bill, I thought, you know, there must be something here. It's very strange that they're coming up in things like legal codes, even royal decrees. Um, if they seem so insignificant, why did they seem to matter so much to mm-hmm. early medieval communities? So um, I just sort of kept a file as I was working on my first project, and that file got pretty fat. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought, well, there must, there's probably enough material here for a book. And then, you know, once I started looking into the archaeology, which has also gotten really good in the past couple of decades, um, I realized there was actually going to be so much material that I could expand it out to um, include really the whole post-imperial West, not just Gaul. Um, I mean, this is an interesting thing that I would like to ask you about now that you brought it up. The parameters of this book seem to really challenge kind of the traditional boundaries of what we think of as the early medieval, early medieval Europe. It certainly um, crosses the specialization that we do in history, right? So how were you, uh, what made you want to include North Africa as well? I mean, you go from North Africa to Ireland. What, how did you work that out? How did that come about? Um, in some ways, for um, for late antique historians, for people who work on the late Roman Empire, those boundaries are pretty conventional because North Africa was part of the western half of the Roman Empire. Um, I So in part, I included it just because if we're looking at what happens to this world with the dissolution of the empire, um, it's good to follow the trajectories of that whole half. Um, but I did want to push it a little bit further. I wanted to look at areas like a little bit of Ireland, Scandinavia, east of the Rhine, um, and also Libya, just to sort of get a little bit of comparators for what pig husbandry is looking like in places that the Romans never colonized. Um, so yes, from an early medieval vantage point, it's it's weird that the North Africa is there, but from a late antique vantage point, if you're thinking like a Roman, um, mm-hmm. it's pretty conventional. 
which, you know, points out, allows us to point out that this book does really covers like the late antique period as well, right? You. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the cool things about agrarian history is that, um, you know, it's useful in some ways to respect conventional geographical and chronological boundaries. And in other ways, it's not really necessary. And maybe um, it's important to kind of push past them because um, farming practices aren't necessarily going to be synced with high politics in a consistent way. Yeah, sure. Uh, particularly um, when you're talking about like something like pigs that are really, um, they, they fit everywhere in every landscape. So the way that, that it works is going to be different. Um, yeah. So uh, why, why pigs? Like what, because this book uh, readers and listeners is not, not really just about pigs, right? It's about uh, it's quite a bit more than pigs, but the pigs provide this entry into a number of issues, you know, about like, ruling and, and community culture and how people interact with one another. So what, what happened? Like, why is this so important? I would say there's probably three reasons that I ended up wanting to do this about pigs versus say chickens or cows or rabbits. Um, and that's the first one is that pigs got talked about um, a kind of disproportionate amount to the uh, volume at which they were eaten they were a ubiquitous animal. Almost every farm had them, but they usually weren't the main meat source um, unless this settlement or household was very rich. Um, but people t- talked about them a-, a lot. Actually, um, a-, a kind of cool case, which I didn't research myself, but there's a really good article in the German of Ro- Roman Archaeology about it. Romans talked about pigs so much that for the longest time, people thought it was the commonest meat on Romans' tables. But in fact, when osteoarchaeologists looked at the bone records, they were like, oh, no, it was beef. (laughs) Um, And so part of me just wanted to know what's the obsession with talking about pigs. That's one reason. A second reason is that um, they became a kind of um, important symbol that Christians used for thinking more deeply about their own religion. it wasn't really an inflammatory symbol of interreligious division yet that would happen in the high middle ages. Um, So it wasn't, in other words, it wasn't really something that people thought was important to highlight when Christians were talking about their difference from Jews or Muslims. Um, But instead it was a, a really rich subject for Christians to think about kind of the complexities of their own faith which we could talk about more. But, um, and then the third reason that I thought pigs are really interesting is just because um, they're very particular um, physical and cognitive abilities and capacities um, made them an invaluable coworker on early medieval farms. And their caretakers noticed that and adapted their practices and their policies and sometimes even their philosophies accordingly. So um, there's something very specific about pig physiology and sociability and um, learning that early medieval farmers and lawmakers noticed um, and in some ways tried to accommodate and even mimic on occasion. So um, yeah, there's there's kind of a lot going on that's very specific to them. Although I do think the um, other historians could write great books on other animals. These are what really appealed to me about the pig. Um, yeah, you seem to have gained a fondness for. I see an appreciation for pigs here in your prose. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, uh, unlike my first book, which when I finished it, I was like, I'm definitely just done with this. I felt like I could have kept working on this one for a long time, and I was like you know, at a point, at a point there's diminishing returns. Um, I could keep entertaining myself, but the book probably won't be much better. So (laughs) fair enough. All right. Um, you just mentioned osteoarchaeology, uh, which is a thing I learned about while reading this book. So tell us, uh, tell us what osteoarchaeology is. So osteoarchaeologists study old bones. Um, and what happened, what has happened in the past, um, half century or so is that, um, their methods have gotten, really cool. Um, People had been counting bones in um, fines for a long time, but um, now they are um, one tool among many in bioarchaeology where scholars are trying to reconstruct the environmental landscape, not just the, um, not just the human centric 
part of the landscape. Although, you know, any livestock is also going to be humanized in some way because they're domesticated. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the most basic things that um, that zoo archaeologists will ask is what's the proportion of this species to that species on a given site? Um, there's different ways of calculating it, but basically the point is to figure out, you know, what were the most important forms of livestock husbandry on a given site? Does that change over time? How does that compare against, you know, the pollen record or the seed record or the charcoal record to say, you know, is the plantscape shifting along with the animal life? Um, another thing that, um, uh, osteoarchaeologists are doing now is stable isotope analysis, um, which can tell you what the animals' diets looked like, and in some cases where the animals came from. Um, so, you know, that starts to get really expensive, and it's not common to do that kind of work, but um, targeted studies do do it, and, it, and they can find out some really cool stuff. Um, and then there's, you know, other things that they'll look at, like, um, how are the bones cut? Do butchery practices change over time? Does that tell us about shifting cultural norms? Um, how were, do the bones show scorch marks? Do we, can we tell how the meat was prepared? Where are the bones on site? Um, what, what kind of body parts concentrate on a given site? Can that tell us about distribution? Like if it's mostly head and feet parts, that, that means the best cuts of meats are going somewhere else. Does that mean it's a producing site? Um, there's, there's just so many inventive ways to think about these, uh, animal remains now. It's really exciting. Definitely. The way you can recreate kind of who lived in this community and did what on this very, on the kind of level that, uh, I don't think we, we would have thought possible not that long ago. Right. Yeah. Um, I, this book definitely couldn't have been written 40 years ago. Um, and and I think one of the most exciting things about um, bioarchaeology in general is that it opens up these spaces in the landscape that would have been totally inaccessible to historians. So, you know, whereas before we were dependent on um, texts, which are very obviously fascinating <laughs> and useful, suddenly there's these other corners of the map that the texts aren't necessarily talking about or, or only sideways. And, um you just get these glimpses of everyday life that are just very precious. Absolutely. Cause texts are indeed useful and wonderful, but um, the farther back you go, the more scarce they become. And especially there's just, uh, there's so many, so many people, so many kinds of people, things and situations that just aren't covered. And that's about, or as you said, only sideways. Right. It, and that's about who's writing them. So agrarian life, you know, how many pigs does someone have is not necessarily a thing or like how they feel about that or what their diet is like. This, these are things you may not, the texts may not tell you, or at least not directly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I was in grad school and taking this class in rural history, you know, one of the, the, um, classic places to study agrarian history is England in the high middle ages, because there was this explosion of documentation that farms were making of their livestock and of their yields. And, um, you know, at the time I was like, I would kill for this sort of stuff for the early middle ages. Like, it's just crazy what kind of material we've got to work with here. But, you know, at the time I wasn't aware that, you know, although a very different kind of source, um, archeology span can offer something that's, um, that in some ways has even more potential to open up these different angles of exploration. Yeah, but you you are not, you don't count bones alone. You are not just using bones. Tell us about some of your other source material. Um, well, so yeah, I, I think, you know, as many archaeologists do, I, um, it's important to consult um, the plant remains, um, pollen, seeds, charcoal alongside the bones so you get a better sense of the landscape as a whole. Um, and again, this is me relying on the work that archaeologists do. I'm definitely not an archaeologist personally, but there are some really incredible studies of, of farmscapes now. So for historians who are interested maybe in dipping their foot into it, um, archaeologists are doing a lot to help us. Um, as far as the um, non-archaeological materials go, um, it's kind of all over the place. I mean, Pigs crop up in um, law codes. So, you know, as the Roman Empire is either dissolving or transitioning, um, a lot of um, new political communities are creating um, new legal 
codes or arrangements and pigs come up a lot in them as do other livestock because one of the big things that they have to deal with is as rural communities is dealing with all of the damages that animals cause when they get loose. So that's a big source. Um, charters are another one. So documents that people draw up as legal arrangements for property transfers. Um, pigs are often mentioned in those. Um, there's plenty of narrative texts too, where pigs will um, play a part in a, a miracle story. Um, there are, um, one of my favorite sources for this book was using biblical commentaries, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, technically exegetical material is about um, where animals come up the most um, is in the commentaries on the story of Genesis, the creation stories there. Um, and you see exegetes trying to wrangle with, A, what what is actually happening in these stories it's a very compressed set of narratives so you know what did it mean for each of these six days to unfold the way they did um, and then at the same time they're trying to connect those stories to what they see in their backyards um, and what they've read about and what they've talked to farm workers about um, trying to sort of read their own present landscapes as a kind of record of what has unfolded since that first moment when it all came into being um, so that's a really cool set of material. And then deeper into the Middle Ages, we get um, visual material too, um, particularly of um, the biblical story of the gathering swine. Um, so mosaics and book illuminations um, start to tell kind of different and changing stories about how the pigs that sort of absorb the demons that get exercised from a possessed man or men um, what does that mean? The interpretations change. Um, so those are sort of some of the big ones. Um, there, uh, there's also um, medical texts and natural history stuff. Um, I guess like, but I don't, I don't need to keep listing. Those are kind of the main <laughs> the core things that um, offer the richest material. Um, and and uh, this is it's a really wide and impressive variety of material you had to deal with and got to deal with. Um, you know, and I, it's funny because there are people who go to a source code or, you know, so, to a body of sources. And they're like, I'm going to read this body of sources and I'm going to write about whatever it tells me. And that is such a smart and efficient way to write history. And <laughs> that is absolutely not what you did here. <laughs> Yeah, in some ways, I mean, my first book was very much that other mode where I was like, I'm going to try to figure out this genre called hagiography. Um, and in some ways, I think early medievalists often need to cut their teeth on that kind of method because um, one of the hardest parts of our job is that we're working with materials that are old and weird. And we think we know what a source is doing. And it turns out it had a totally different function and way of working 1500 years ago. Um, and so I think it's very good that I did that because I think coming to the pig stuff, it was, um, it made it easier to be critical of what, every time a pig pops up, you know, what is it doing in the context of that material? Um, but it's also, you know, the reason that I started ranging out not, wasn't just because pigs crop up in a lot of places, but also because I was after having done my first book a lot more excited about ranging further out and not confining myself to a single sure. source. So I don't know yeah. if I could have done this as book one. I probably not. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. My advisor referred to this method as hunting for needles and stacks of needles. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that struck me. Um, you know, before we go anywhere else, you were just talking about the story of like how demons enter pigs and what that means, but also there's a lot of the way you describe pigs and people describe pigs in your sources that makes them seem like that's not a big stretch, right? Pigs seem kind of like, hmm, sure. Um, what, tell me about pigs. What do they do? Why, why, are we, why are they so interesting? They have this reputation in older agrarian histories that I read of being um, described in strangely cold and economic terms is just sort of the ideal node where inputs become huge outputs. <laughs> like pigs will eat a ton of different stuff and they get fat very rapidly. And as such, they're supposed to be the ideal livestock for making meat. Um, but when you look into the early medieval stuff, it's clear that they're like, there's a lot of other things that concern them and pigs are very difficult 
animals, not not so difficult that they're not worth rearing, but they cause a lot of problems and demand more attention from humans than they got credit for um, in most work. So it's because actually that they are omnivorous eaters and because they're curious and exploratory that make them valuable animals, but it's also precisely what makes them difficult. So they escape from their pens, they root up fields and do more damage than other kind of livestock would because they're really overturning the earth and um, pulling things out. Um, They learn from each other. So if one figures out how to escape, the rest of them are likely to do the same. Um, they are also, they can, they're capable of violence. They can kill children. They can seriously injure adults. There's documented cases from the medieval material of them killing other animals. Um, they, yeah, they, they were, they were difficult. Um, and so in addition to, you know, having to keep your fences improved, people also realized that they, you know, they probably needed dedicated care. And there were going to be times when they were just going to get out anyway, because that's that's what they do. And so um, there was this understanding that humans needed to figure out how pigs behaved and learn to anticipate some of their behaviors. But at some point to also realize that they were going to be costs that they needed to absorb because the animals were worth it in other ways. I just love that they can teach each other how to escape. Like that's that, that's brilliant. That's well done, pigs. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the coolest stuff in um, mammal biology that I read about pigs is just, you know, there's just an understanding that pigs essentially have culture, that they learn things from each other um, and they adapt and make decisions based on what they've learned and, and experienced. And um, yeah, it's um, really impressive. And, and, and also that, you know, you can see hints in the medieval material of, of their caretakers recognizing this, that they, you know, um, this sort of impoverished idea of instinct that we are only slowly starting to abandon now, it really doesn't make, make sense when we're thinking about animals. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so you, you brought this up earlier, and I want to get back to um, biblical exegesis and the way that early modern philosophers, and that is its own kind of term, right? I'm saying philosophers, but you could say theologian, church father, right? This is, mm-hmm. That is a porous wall that does, it's not even worth talking about. So medieval, early medieval thinkers um, are, are deeply interested in the natural world, and uh, pigs play a role in that and I would love to hear what uh, I would love you to tell our listeners what I just learned from your book. Actually, what do we need to know? <laughs> um, well, one of the really cool things about um, early medieval ideas about nature is that they um, had a much more ecological sensibility than um, we often give them credit for. Um, I think a more traditional assumption about pre-modern Christians is that they saw the natural world is sort of their entitlement to dominate, that they were superior to everything around them and that they had carte blanche to do what they wanted with it. Um, But they didn't, those hierarchies um, were not that salient to them. Um, Plus they also recognized that they were subordinate to angels. They weren't as great as angels. So they, they were not even at the top of the hierarchy of created things. Um, But more importantly, they, they saw themselves as an interdependent part of a system that was constantly in flux. Um, Pigs were definitely, um, it helped reinforce that lesson when you cared for an animal that, you know, did what it wanted sometimes and was only imperfectly controlled by the people who had ostensibly domesticated it. It was a good reminder of that. Um, Another way that pigs reminded humans of this kind of ecological um, relationship was that, you know, because pigs had an omnivorous diet, truly omnivorous, um, they, uh, were adaptable in a way that humans took advantage of and also just try, tried to take their cue from in, you know, in saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to take use of resources that we wouldn't otherwise use by, giving them to pigs and then we use pigs that the, that relationship of interdependence is clear. Um, you know, one of their favorite things to feed pigs, the acorn crop didn't come reliably every year. Um, it was obvious to them that, you know, 
um, there were changes in the way that nature behaved year in and year out. It wasn't a perfect cycle. Um, working with animals, uh, working with their farm landscapes and in woodlands, they came to see that very clearly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, <clears throat> pigs weren't obviously the only animal teaching them this. Um, and, and, and actually the exegetes kept encouraging each other and their readers to go out into the world and see everything as a potential lesson. Um, and it wasn't just sort of like, oh, we'll sort of turn the material real world into kind of moral uh, stories that teach us how to do things ethically. It was more like, no, you need to pay attention to the very concrete ways that um, things are playing out in your farms, in the oceans, in the woods, because all of that very specific detail will help you understand how the world was pieced together. It helps you really understand the logic that makes it move. And, and if you're, if you're just sort of focusing on generic stuff, you're not really going to appreciate the kind of intelligence with which this whole package was designed in the first place. This kind of um, interest in the natural world is not something that has been traditionally ascribed to the early medieval period, right? This kind of certainly um, a non-specialist listener might be surprised by this. Yeah, I think um, that's in part because it has been conventionally kind of easy to imagine that Christian culture either didn't change over the long haul, that just sort of belief in a core text amounts to um, a sort of unchanging way of seeing the world. Um, The other reason might be that, you know, we sort of assume that Christianity was anti-intellectual, that even if Christianity might change over time, one constant is that it was just sort of interested in its own canon rather than in any sort of intellectual curiosity or growth. Um, But the, you know, late antique and early medieval Christians who are thinking about this stuff um, we're constantly willing to say, we don't know the answer to this. It, you know, the jury is still out. We await further research. Um, you know, the, it's important to consult other materials to, to illuminate our understanding of scripture. There's definitely um, places where, you know, the text alone can't tell us. We need to consult physicians or farmers or fishermen. Um, and and so it's really it's really cool to see them having that sort of sense of intellectual humility, but also adventurousness. Yeah, that's very cool. I uh, I have to, yeah, I really enjoyed reading that. And it, it was, gave me a little pause um, as well. And it, it's, you see, um, you see these uh, in, interests in things that, um, you know, I think most people, like that we've been told aren't happening until the enlightenment, right? Like the, tra- the traditional narrative. And it's like, oh no, that's happening in the seventh century, right? the sixth century you're seeing this. It's, um, it's definitely conflicts with, I think, what is still tragically the dominant paradigm kind of of the narrative, the progress narrative in history. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as long as we're not really learning um, early medieval history, and I mean, it's it's just one of those things early medievalists are, are <laughs> trying to correct. But, you know, <laughs> there's a whole educational system in place. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, and the I mean, the medieval period isn't taught enough anymore at all, and certainly not your period. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I when I was in college, I remember you know the very first history class I took was a class on the early Middle Ages, and I only took it because the class on Nazi Germany was full. And <laughs> in the class, I was like, oh, I guess I never thought that there was like anything that happened between the end of the Roman Empire and like the renaissance like I, <laughs> it was just like a blank spot in my mind you know um and that is particularly the early middle ages which you know isn't wasn't hardly represented in tv or film even let alone in you sure. know a textbook so no that yeah certainly not and certainly any kind of early medieval treatment is just a particularly poor right <laughs> um Save the Vikings. We rarely talk about them in my mind. Oh. Yeah, maybe and- the Vikings can be our way into everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting the good fight. Yeah, I'm sure that is that's gotta be very frustrating as an early medievalist. 
Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, um, yeah, I don't really have any narratives to unseat as an instructor. Like students come in and there's there's nothing I need to disabuse them of the notion of other than that, like, oh, stuff actually did happen for 500 years. Um, but it does feel then like you're, you know, it's hard to decide what direction to take them because it's just so, it's such a blank slate. Yeah, and European education, I mean, is even the Renaissance, there's a lot I do have to, un, that have that people have to unlearn when I teach the Renaissance, but the education can be so poor that they just aren't, they don't know anything. And they're like, wow, stuff happened. It's cool. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, we, we sort of, the way that I teach my survey, which covers the entire Middle Ages is, you know, we, we definitely spend a week or two um, looking at the Roman Empire because they know that, they've got that. And I think if you give them at least a little bit of a life raft um, where, where they can see that there are continuities with stuff that, that they do know, um, then, then it feels a little bit less like throwing them in the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet. That's on you. All right. Um, after this, uh, the discussion of early medieval philosophy and early, early medieval thinking, the next chapter you, fo- you move into focus on material culture, um, which I think is probably easier to understand for some of our readers and certainly will probably seem like more convincing evidence about the place and meanings of pigs. Um, but you suggest specifically the opposite, that while texts and bones are very different kinds of evidence, they actually speak to one another and come from the same place. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, um, a, a lot of historians have already been saying, you know, we need to not imagine a divide between high culture and low culture, um, that, you know, not only were people who weren't necessarily wealthy or educated participating in conversations and arguments that, you know, involved a lot of different social levels. Um, Also, people who were educated and wealthy, I mean, particularly in the early Middle Ages, they had farms, that's where all of their wealth came from, they, they knew what pigs were. Um, And so to imagine that there's sort of this split where people, there's just either the armchair intellectuals or the farmers is to discount how um, these communities were a lot more fluid than that. Um, so that's, that's part of the point. And the other is just that, you know, the sources can be complementary, even if they don't talk about exactly the same places or problems. So, you know, like when you look at the bioarchaeological evidence, you can say, okay, here's, here's what people were working with. Here's what they were eating and consuming and trading. Um, here's how, you know, the composition of their woodlands changed over time. Um, you compare that against the legal evidence where you see farm animals causing all kinds of havoc and you can say, all right, well, the relatively placid evidence we get from the material record um, can be a little bit more complicated when you see that farming had its problems um, and that, you know, this sort of ideal that maybe the statistics might tell you of 30% pigs, 40% cattle, um, you know, can be sort of supplemented with codes that are telling you, oh man, you know, cows got out of from the fences, pigs jumped them, pigs uprooted stuff. Mm-hmm. Even if that's the proportion of animals we knew they had, we mm-hmm. can also see that it was, you know, there were there were these problems with agriculture too. Sure. Um, and yeah, like if you just think there are more cows than pigs, you don't realize that people are thinking a lot more about their pigs, for instance. Yeah, or, or that, you know, particular problems that they had with their pigs were, you know, really pressing in the fall if the nutcraft didn't come in. And yeah, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not sort of like you're going to get two sides of the same coin with the texts and the archaeology, but you do, you you are seeing more of this world that um, than you would if you just looked at one, one body of material or the other. So you cover a huge area, like a huge physical area with loads of different like miniature climates, um, microclimates, that's what they're called, and landscapes and what have you. Um, and what is there anything that unifies this? Like are there any trends that you want to draw, like kind of big, big brush kind of things that you want to say about pigs across the period um, or agriculture ac- across this whole space? 
Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the most challenging parts of working on this book is that because you're dealing with so many different microecologies, because farming looks so different from place to place, even within a single zone, depending on, you know, the wealth of the inhabitants or their integration in various regional economies. How do you talk about something coherently while doing justice to the fact that the mm-hmm. particularity, the mosaic of that story is going to be really um, highly differentiated? Um, I think that one of the ways the story needs to be unified is just a constant reminder that things are different in different places, um, in part to to salvage some of the complexity that even early medieval societies had. That's not just the 21st century that's kind of you know, chaotic and differentiated. The early Middle Ages experiences differed really widely, even in this zone that I, you know, that we call the early medieval West. Um, Another part of um, the story that stays constant, I mean, you know, um, one thing we can say pretty securely is that pigs' behaviors and capabilities were pretty constant across regions because, you know, when we look at the mammal biology now and compare it with what evidence we do have from the early Middle Ages and from antiquity, it's clear that pigs had some of the same capacities that they do over the long haul, even though animals, of course, can change quite a bit. Um, So that even though pigs are very adaptable and learn based on their own pig communities and their own pig places, um, you know, the kinds of problems that they presented their caretakers are going to be pretty consistent and the kinds of opportunities they presented. So then you see other patterns start to unfold on top of that. Like, for example, um, you you tend to see pigs um, thriving, especially in places where there's a lot of woodlands. It's not a, a, an absolute equation. There's lots of places where there are no woods and pigs and, and or lots of woods and not ma- many pigs. Um, another thing that you tend to see is that uh, um, people with more resources tend to eat more pork. Um, that seems to be because they're collecting it from farmers who paid it as a kind of rent or tax or um, sort of relationship of dependency payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not constant, but it seems to be they're eating more than the regional average wherever they are. Um, but to me, the more interesting thing is probably that the story is actually um, uh, really locally specific. And even more cool, I think, is that early medieval early medieval culture was that was just a a given that you know when you when you thought about the physical world you needed to think about scale that um the very particular to the very large it was worth having them all hang together but to notice that things were um going to be unpredictable the the closer in that you zoomed Mm -hmm. yeah i was also thinking about how ubiquitous the pig is and how um you see people using um, what's the hipster head to tail, right? Snout to tail <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. But I mean, not just for food, right? Pigs are being used uh, all over for all kinds of things. Yeah, I think that uh, my favorite thing um, to learn was that um, Pliny and other and medical writers from late antiquity were like, pigs, pig lard makes the best sort of medicinal base. <laughs> it's just got all of these great properties in it. Um uh, yeah, uh, the the using the bladder for a, an inflated bladder as a ball, I thought was great. Um, using their um, like dried dung for toothpaste, I thought was hilarious, mostly because the guy who recommended this was like, I know it sounds gross, but definitely it will make your teeth sparkling white. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not worth it. yeah and i was also um you know a lot of people have asked like can you use pig skin as parchment and it it was interesting that the answer is kind of like no it's too greasy um definitely lamb goat cow much preferable um instead their skin was more like um you'd use it for transit containers kind of like the cardboard boxes of the early Ah, (laughs) sure that's a good good use for pigs. We should uh, bring that back. Um, <laughs> so, are pigs a, when when do, what's the relationship between pigs and Christianity? Um. So, pigs because they're the only animal that were raised exclusively for their meat. They don't really do anything else for you. They don't pull wagons. They don't plow. They don't 
<laughs> Weirdly, I've not heard anything about their milk. Um, although people have sent me articles where uh, about modern people using pig's milk. No evidence of this in the early Middle Ages. Um, yeah, so unlike all these other livestock, they're pretty much there because they make meat. So they become um, uh, intertwined in um, the cultural imagination with just sort of pigs equal meat, pigs equal flesh. Um, so the, um, the idea of caro, which in Latin means meat or flesh, pigs, pigs equal caro, pigs equal meat flesh. And this idea of flesh or meat is central in um, Christian thinking, particularly in thinking about um, the relationship between bodies and spirit. Like why is the flesh getting in the way? Is the flesh in some ways helping the spirit? Um, because the figure of Jesus is this kind of, it, he's the pivotal hinge between um, what is eternal and non-fleshy, um, but his body is precisely what enables uh, eternity to happen for humanity. And so this is like a very dizzying metaphysical concept. It's very complicated. People in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages are constantly trying to piece through like, what is it exactly about Christ that made redemption possible. Um, and pigs are one way, it's not the, definitely not the only way, but pigs are one way to think about that kind of complicated transfer because um, they, being quintessential meatiness, um, make a kind of sacrifice of themselves so that humans can continue to live. And even though it's not at all the same kind of magnitude as the kind of sacrifice that God made. Um, it's at least, it works by a kind of analogy to help humans understand how a death can equal life. And so um, that, that's just an idea that they tease out and explore. I mean, it, it, so pigs come to embody this kind of, these seemingly paradoxical impulses that, that the material, that matter has. It's both mm -hmm. um, subordinate to the world of ideas and the spirit and the soul and things that are changeless, but it also helps people. It's, it's the means by which people can be saved. And it's also the means by which people can just understand in the first place, how that other world works. Um, so yeah, they become a very kind of complicated double symbol of, of both the things that are bad and salvific about the world. Um, and, and that was kind of a cool thing to learn because I think, you know, most often pigs had had this reputation of being just the bad end of that spectrum, that they're <laughs> greedy and dirty. And, um, in, in previous centuries, they'd been equated with sex. Um, that's not really an, something that interested the early middle ages very much. Um, but it was really neat to see this other side open mm -hmm. up as people start exploring, well, what, what are the good parts of flesh how does that how is that also central to our own way of thinking about um about faith this seems to be another sign of just how of the incredible import of pigs in human life like just how much they're around and you must think about them because yeah um they it, it's one of these kind of concepts that um just becomes so saturated with different lines of thinking that um, to, to say that uh, pigs equal X is just to flatten it completely. Um, that, And in some way, the reason that people were capable of holding so many complex ideas about pigs slash meat in their minds is that they were around these animals all the time and knew that they were both valuable and difficult. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, although there's plenty of examples of both early medieval and modern people having kind of two simultaneously contradictory ideas about animals at the same time, both they're smart and they're dumb, whenever it's convenient for us to think about that. I think the, the, it was commoner for them just to see, to see them really coexisting in the same animal and, and sort of fusing these different capacities together. So rather than having a kind of bifurcated like one side of me sees this and the other side isn't paying attention it's more like they're just recognizing that that pigs are very complicated and that their meanings and relationships change depending on a very specific context yeah um wow such an important animal um and then uh they kind of 
there's a golden age of pigs, right? And they, they kind of disappear. <laughs> what happens to the pigs? Uh, well, they, you know, they're still really important in the high middle ages. Um, and in some ways the story could continue further because farming, you know, because this, because farming communities are so different place to place, um, you could find pigs 300 years later being raised in some of the same ways. Um, but overall it tended to be that toward the end of the middle ages, uh, pigs tended to be more stall fed than free ranging. Whereas in the early middle ages, they were usually, most of them were free ranging animals. Um, and you also see, um, more deforestation happening toward the end of the middle ages. So, um, which makes it, you know, less of a bargain to be raising pigs. Um, but in other ways that there, in other ways, there's continuities. Um, pigs were really important to the military slash entrepreneurial slash colonization projects, um, as Europeans cross the Atlantic. Um, pigs were still important to, as a form of elite dining, um, rich people still loved pork, um, so did soldiers. Um, they're still a really important part of Christian culture to the point where, um, they take on a much more, um, antagonistic role in, um, in Christian antisemitism in the late middle ages, where it's really in the late middle ages where pigs become a kind of flashpoint as something that distinguishes Christians from Jews and Muslims. Um, and, and that's not really something that you had seen in centuries prior. Um, and then it's also in the late middle ages when, um, you see examples of animals being put on trial. That's also new in those centuries. Um, and you know, the historians who have studied those trials more closely than I have, have pointed out that, you know, again, they show a kind of, um, uh, idea of the animal as being capable of being evaluated as, um, as being treated seriously as potentially, um, a subject capable of committing crimes, but also put on trials in ways that is still very much, um, treating it as an object that is, that is not human. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the I I can only sort of point to some of these little threads in my epilogue, but you know, it would be definitely cool to see you know a more deep history of what happens to them um, in the course of the high and late Middle Ages, um, and then and there's good work now too on um, pigs in the Americas. Um, although animal historians are also saying there should be more. Um, I guess one of the things that I learned in the process of doing this book is that. There, there shouldn't be just a pig book, one pig book that, you know, because they learn and change and adapt in the way humans do, because they have histories like we do, um, it wouldn't be weird to give them histories in different times and places. More pig books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, I, so are you speaking of more pig books? Are you done with pigs now? What's next? What are you working on? Um, I, I, I think I'm done with pigs specifically, but it, the project did get me interested in thinking about, um, garbage, like how mm -hmm. early medieval communities thought about trash. Um, in part because, you know, when archeologists find these bones, sometimes they're in dedicated sort of waste or butchery areas. And sometimes they're just in people's houses. And it's like, what would that be like to just be like living with bones on your floor I mean, sometimes they're just like tiny little scraps that you wouldn't notice, but I don't know. So sort of a kind of textual material, probably just an article about early medieval handling of trash, ideas about trash. Um, but what I'm working on right now is a kind of different thing entirely. It's about monks in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages and their problems with concentration and distraction. So it's kind uh, of a, yeah. a, a different direction for the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that I've seen that you've done some work on that kind of in a, the popular culture realm. Like what, what can monks teach us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's like a, a cognitive history kind of, I guess, um, how they use their brains, how they really fretted about distraction, how they moralized it in the first place. Oh, that's, I'm, that's fascinating. I can't wait to read that. All right. 
Well, they're, monks are almost as entertaining as pigs, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I want, I'm trying to think what I, who I spend more time with. Like, do I see more pigs or monks these days? It's a tough I mean, choice. Yeah, when I was in Italy, definitely more monks. But um, it's not, there's not no, there are no pigs, but there are a lot of monks. Probably up here, fewer, I think probably more pigs than monks in the Netherlands. Well, you know, I was reading this really great book called Porkopolis about um, this sort of um, pig farming zone in the American Midwest um, by Alex Blanchett. Um, and he points out, you know, this is one of the epicenters of pig production in the United States. And outside going to these factories, he never saw a pig just like outside, like in the wild. And I think that's one of the weirdest things about writing this book is that, you know, Pigs are still everywhere, but they're also nowhere today. And so it's so easy to imagine that they don't really matter. Um, and whereas in the early Middle Ages, people just knew they mattered in part because they were so visible. So, yeah, it's it's a really sort of strange relationship we have to them now. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about like how much interaction I have with pigs, which is like zero, zero, like zero. I never see a pig or, you know, maybe I might drive by a pig. But, I, um, but the idea that there would just be pigs kind of out. And, and I know that I could go to a pig farm perhaps and see them, but the idea that they would just be like out by the sides of like roads and in the forest and like on the outskirts of my town that I would just have pigs around every day is really an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And I think it's easy to forget how much, um, knowledge we don't have as a result of of those non-interactions like um when my husband and i were in college we got parrots as pets which by the way i would never recommend we we kept them until we died we took as good care of them as as possible but they are not really domesticated um but the the hardest adjustment was that there was no intuitive knowledge we had about birds like you know we even if you don't grow up with a cat or dog yourself you see enough of them that you just kind of know what their behaviors mean and what you should and shouldn't do around a cat or a dog and birds, we had to learn it. And as a result, you know, when we look out at, you know, in our backyard, a lot of bird behaviors are much more legible to us now than they would have been 20 years ago, because we just, you know, even though we had parrots from South America, the stuff Cardinals do in some ways are similar. Like, you know, when they're cleaning their beaks after having eaten and you know what they are doing when they're preening. And um, I think that that, must have been true about pigs too, that, you know, there were just a lot of things that people would have known by virtue of even having a passing familiarity with them in the street. Um, and that's part of the reason why people misbehave around pigs when they do see them in the wild now. Like there's some island in the Caribbean where pigs are sort of like swimming around and hanging out on the beach. And there's like a bajillion YouTube videos of people getting bit or attacked by them because, they don't, you know, they've lost that knowledge that people used sure. to have. I would have no idea what to do with a pig. If it wandered up to me, do I pet it? Do I run away from it? What do I do with the I have no, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. If there's if there's one takeaway that listeners can get, it's don't walk up to try to pet a wild pig. <laughs> they may bite yeah. you. <laughs> Look, Don't we're, look, we're not just improving your mind, but maybe saving your life with this podcast. <laughs> this is incredibly important stuff. You're welcome, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Don't pet wild boar. All right. Um, thank you so much. I've taken quite enough of your time, but it has been an absolute joy. I really enjoyed the book, listeners. Um, give it give it a shot. Uh, Legions of Pigs in the Early Medieval West from Yale University Press. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you so much.